0: If you have your uh, Bibles, to, please do take them to uh, and turn to Isaiah chapter 63. Where we'll pick up at verse 15. Isaiah chapter 63, beginning at verse 15, and we'll read all the way through to the end of chapter 64. Look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inward parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our Father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our Father, Redeemer from of old is your name, O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage, your holy people held possession for a little while, our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name." Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence." From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for Him. You meet Him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, we all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There's no one who calls upon Your name, who rouses himself to take hold of You, for You have hidden Your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, You are our Father, we are the clay, You are our potter, we are all the work of Your hand." Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please, look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire, and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Amen. Let us pray. Lord our God, we pray now for the ministry of Your Holy Spirit amongst us. We are so grateful for Him, for His ministry of opening our eyes and unstopping our ears and softening our hearts, that we might behold the glory of God in the gospel. We pray that He would be powerfully at work amongst us now, that we might understand this portion of Your holy Word, and that we might be led to pray and praise God because of it. Amen. Isaiah is drawing his letter to the exiles to a close, and the word that he wants ringing in their ears is a word of hope. He wants to fill their hearts, as we've seen, with the expectation of the new world that will come in and through Jesus Christ, and in which the people of God will be led to finally rest. In a sermon I listened to last week on Psalm 23, a psalm preached by Neil Stewart at Briarwood, it's a sermon you need to look up and listen to if you want to love Jesus more. In that sermon, Neil Stewart drew out magnificent treasures about the wonder of Jesus our great shepherd. But as he was talking about the middle section of that psalm, we just sang it, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. As he was talking about that, he said two things that were particularly powerful. The first is the observation that that valley really isn't a good translation. It's more like ravine. It's a, it's a distinctly hostile image that we are being given a threatening place, not a lovely valley. I don't know how you think of valleys, but, but I think of them as the most wonderful places on earth, right? In, in a few weeks, Lord willing, I'll be back in Scotland and and one of my first stops will be in the valleys, going up to the glens, right? They are, they are beautiful and peaceful places, places where I just exhale and, and all is right with the world. But in Psalm 23, that's not what he's describing. What he's describing is that a ravine or a canyon. It's a place of inherent danger, right? Another place that I plan on spending a lot of time is on the The cliffs that are on the east coast of Scotland right at the North Sea, they too are wonderful places, but they are not serene, right? You have to picture the scene, these high sandstone cliffs with the gray North Sea boiling and, and twisting at the bottom of them, the spray lashing off of that sea, the wind threatening to destabilize your footing as you walk along. It's a place of looming danger. It's a place of ravines, a place where in an instant you lose your footing and it's, it's goodnight Vienna. It's a place you cannot rest, a place you have to always be on your guard. That's the image of Psalm 23, the image that's being used in that psalm to describe life in this present fallen World, A place where we cannot let our guard down because there are always threats from the world and threats from the flesh and threats from the devil. A place where we cannot rest because 1 Peter 5:8, we have an adversary, the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But the second thing that, that Neil Stewart observed about that imagery was that it's not a valley of darkness. It's a valley of a shadow because there's a light shining. It's not the finality of the grave. It is not a ravine that goes into the deep darkness of Sheol, but it is a a canyon in which death casts its shadow, but it's only a shadow because there is a greater light shining. It's the light that the psalmist anticipates being brought out into, that light and life of peace and rest in the nearer presence of God, the light and life of joy and contentment sitting at the table of the Lord. Essentially, it's the same message that Isaiah is trying to drive into the hearts of his readers in these final chapters. As He tries to disciple them from afar, disciple them through the ages, and help them, help us to grasp how to live as the people of God in this present world, that's the image that He wants us to have in our minds, that greater light that is shining at the end of the canyon. That you remember the core principle that Isaiah gave us in chapter 56 when he began this, this section in which he has been trying to teach us how to live as Christians? In Isaiah 56 verse 1, Isaiah writes, Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Right? That is Christian ethics 101. If you want a a two-verse encapsulation of Christian ethics, what it means to live as the people of God in this present age, it's Isaiah 56, 1 and 2. How are you to live in this dark and dangerous world? You are to live, Isaiah is saying, as children of light, keeping justice, doing righteousness, holding fast to the Word of God, keeping the Sabbath, which you remember we said means letting your whole life be shaped and informed by your redemption. But did you hear the core promise that anchors it? For soon my salvation will come. Thus says the Lord, keep, right, keep justice and do righteousness, for, because the anchoring promise, my salvation will soon come. And that's what Isaiah has been trying to fill the hearts and minds of his readers with in these last few chapters as he draws his letter to a close. In these in these final chapters, he wants them to grasp that soon coming salvation of the Lord the coming salvation of the Lord, in which their faith will become sight, and they will be brought out of the ravines of this world and into that bright light of the full joy and peace of Christ's consummated kingdom. But now, As that section ends and before the final two chapters in which we will hear God addressing His people with words of tender encouragement, Isaiah, in a sense, stops here and he leads his readers to pray. Now, it's not the first time we've seen him do this, right? In this, what we could call the The discipleship section of Isaiah, this this latter half in which he has been preaching the gospel to the exiles and then and then leading them to understand what life looks like as the people of God. Right, you remember back in chapter fifty one, verses nine through eleven, we saw Isaiah lead his readers in what we called a sinner's prayer. Right? Having put on display for them the grace of God manifest in Jesus Christ, Isaiah's servant of the Lord. you remember Isaiah has pressed them? He brings them to that crunch point, which he says, who now will follow the Lord? And he anticipates a positive response from his readers, and then in Isaiah 51, he gives them the words to say as they return to the Lord in faith and repentance. He gives them the words to use as they call out to God and lay hold of His mercy, as as He leads them to call out to God to rescue them from their sins. And essentially, that's what Isaiah is doing here, again, as a faithful pastor. Right? He's just filled their minds and their hearts with, with glorious visions, right? Visions of this bountiful new creation that will come. Right, this eschatological hope of this, of this new world that will be ushered in, free from sin and free from the effects of sin. He's given them, you remember last week, that grand vision of Christ, the conquering King. You remember that that image of Isaiah, he pictures himself as, as a watchman standing on the walls of Jerusalem, and he sees Christ coming from Edom, coming from the, the heart of Israel's enemies and And Christ is this warrior king drenched in the blood of his enemies. It's Revelation 19. It's that image that the day will come when Christ has wholly routed all of his and our enemies, and there is no more evil to contend with anymore. Isaiah has been filling our hearts, our minds with this image of that light that's at the end of the ravine. And now, he anticipates that almost that we stand dumbfounded. Having beheld these glorious things, it's almost as if we're… He understands we don't quite know what to do with it, and so He, he gives us a prayer to pray in response. And at the heart of that prayer is a request that God would come soon and bring all of these things to reality. This section that we've just read is essentially the same thing, but but fuller, but essentially the same as as what we find at the end of Revelation. What is it that John leads us to pray right at the end of the book of Revelation? John, like Isaiah, has just given us this glorious vision of a coming new world. Like Isaiah, John has just told us about the the final destruction of evil, and he's told us about the glories of Christ, our conquering king, and and, and at the end of Revelation, he's he's brought us into these grand visions of of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven adorned as a bride for her husband, right? He struggled to grasp the language to adequately describe this new world in which he says there's going to be no sun because it will be illuminated by the near presence of God. This new Jerusalem in which there's there's no temple because God will just dwell immediately with His people. This new world in which there's no night because there's nothing to be afraid of anymore, no reasons to shut those city gates because all evil is done away with. This new world in which people from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue join together as one united church, all ethnic and linguistic divisions done away with, and the people of God simply united and giving praise to their shared Redeemer. Right? John has told us of that light at the end of the ravine, and, and how, does, how does it end? We hear those sweet words of reassurance from Christ, don't we? Revelation 21, verse four, 22, verse 14. Jesus says to us, "Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they might have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates, outside or the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. And then verse 20, he who testifies to these things says… The last word of Jesus to His church, surely I am coming soon. And what's the prayer that John leads his readers to pray in response? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. It's just four words. Four words in English, four words in Greek but packed into it a whole Bible's worth of eschatological hope, a whole Bible's worth of anticipated salvation from the first promise in Genesis 3:16, and then within it all of those beautiful nuances and details and graces beyond our imaginations that have been teased out and applied through the unfolding of redemption. All of it spilling out in this, in this short but, but so profound prayer. May it be. May it be soon. Come again, Lord Jesus. Return to earth. Bring full healing in Your wings. Bring us into the fullness of our salvation. Save us from our besetting sins. Lord, Haste the day when our faith shall be sight and the clouds roll back like a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Make it so. It's the last prayer that you are given in your Bibles. Lord, make it so. Turn our hope into reality. It's the same prayer that Isaiah is giving us here, but here he fills it out. He takes that prayer, He unfolds it, and He gives us a more expanded and specific prayer to prayer that we, as we long for the consummation of the ages and the return of Christ. And what is at the heart of it? At the heart of it is a prayer that expresses the longing of the redeemed heart to be in the nearer presence of God. Chapter 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood, and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. At the beginning of the prayer in verse 15, Isaiah prayed that God would look down from heaven. It's the prayer that God would would look down and see the affliction of His people as we walk through this dark ravine. Now, of course, Isaiah knows that God sees it all. Isaiah knows that God is a good shepherd who always knows where His sheep are. He knows that that God does not take His eye off us, and even in the hardships of life, we know that they are all under the sovereign superintention of God. Isaiah knows the truth of Romans 8.28, that in God's sovereignty, married to His grace, all things work together for the good of those who love God. That has been woven all through this book, that God is in control, and He always has the best interests of His people at heart. But in verse 15, Isaiah leads us to pray that God would look down from heaven and and see, and, and if you're familiar with your Bibles, that should ring a bell, right? It's the thought of Exodus 3.7. What is it that God said to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters? That's what Nehemiah referenced in Nehemiah 9.9 9, as he led Israel to pray to God, you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. But it's that thought, not that God is neglectful, but, but really it's a call to God To action. A call that he wouldn't just see the affliction of God's people, but that he would come and save them, that he would rise and and come to their aid. We get it, don't we? The exiles have been gloriously reconciled to God. In the grace of God, they they have been led to see their sin, they have felt the weight of their guilt, and they have in response to the gospel that Isaiah has persistently preached to them, they have laid hold of Christ by faith and trusted in the mercy of God. But you remember we said part of the struggle in these latter chapters of Isaiah is that, is that functionally, experientially, nothing has changed. They're still suffering. They're still in Babylon. They're still a conquered people living in a foreign land. And maybe their their renewed zeal for God has only made it worse because suddenly they are going in the opposite direction of the Babylonian assimilation plan. Further alienated now from the culture of their captors than they've ever been. But, But even apart from that, they're still living in this world. They still had the suffering that just comes from life in a fallen world. They still had to endure the sorrows and trials of daily life. Last week we said sometimes we we wish that our our Christian life was like quantum leap, and that we, we put our faith in Christ, and suddenly we zip out of this world and into the new world. But it's not like that. And knowing it's not like that, there is a great temptation for us, I think, to just and try to ignore the trials and sorrows of life in this world. To try and use Romans 8.28 as a little mantra that helps us play Pollyanna's glad game. Now, don't get me wrong. 1 Timothy 6.6 6 is a verse we need to inscribe on our hearts that godliness with contentment is great gain. That is true and, and glorious. And, and I know a dear saint, a, a minister, I've never known someone in life to endure so many constant trials. Relationship conflict, health woes, a van that breaks down on the regular, the first of every week it seems something falls off his vehicle. It would get me down. The worst I've ever heard him say is, you know, this is beginning to get to the end of my rope. He is a man who embodies godliness with contentment and it's a glorious thing to see a man so at peace in his Savior that he is able to go through the trials and sorrows of life and, and do it with a smile. But you understand there is room to feel the pain and sorrows of life. There is room to grieve and mourn, to feel the weight of sin's corruption Of God's good world, there is room to cry out to God that He would make it all new. To to feel it and to be led to pray that, that redemption would come to its completion and that God would usher in the new age free from sin and free from the effects of sin. To pray that the great eschatological hope that Isaiah has been so gloriously describing would enter in and that the now and not yet of our redemption of the blessings of God, would simply become the now of our redemption. It's one of the ways that in His faithful sovereignty, God uses our pains and griefs and groanings as ministers of grace, lifting our heads up from this present world, teaching us that our home is not here leading us to pray for the full display of God's glory and redemption, and in the complete victory over the fall, and in bringing His people to wholly dwell in a new Eden. We see it here, don't we? Verse 17. O Lord, why do You make us wander from Your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear You not? Return for the sake of Your servants, the tribes of Your heritage, And then the lament of how destructive their sin had been. Verse 18, your holy people held possession for a while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. That lament that's picked up again in verse 6, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and you have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Right? You understand those verses. It's not that God has actually forced them, verse 17, to wander from His ways. It's not that God's face is actually hidden from them. Right, it's that feeling the weight of their sin, feeling the godlessness of the society around them, coming to terms with the gravity of the consequences of their sin, they are brought to this to this this prayer of lament that lamenting that they are not as near to God as they long to be. It's Psalm fifty one. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Clearly, they do call upon the name of the Lord. That's why they're praying. They are assured that He is not hidden from them. In verse 8, Isaiah leads them to pray, you are our Father. Right? You only pray that when you have the assurance of your salvation. When you are assured that you have been reconciled to God, that the guilt of your sin has been put away, and that you have been reconciled to God, not just as God, but even now as your heavenly Father. But it is that the sorrow and weight of sin that they feel has come upon them, and they know that they are not as near to God as they want to be. They feel the division between them and their holy God. They lament the sin that remains and the sin that surrounds, and they long for it to just be no more. Listen, lean into that feeling. We live in an age of distraction. There's just noise everywhere. I remember somebody in a a radio show talking about the experience of even your your grandparents, probably now your great-grandparents. They lived what, 120 years ago. Radio's Radios were not even common in homes. So your great-grandmother going through her chores all day, cleaning the house, peeling potatoes, making dinner. There was no noise in the background. She did it all with her own thoughts. To us, that is a concept that almost makes us quake. Right, we put on the, the news the minute we wake up in the morning, and that television will stay on till the minute we go to bed at night. Right? We take speakers to the beach, which is bananas. The whole point of going to the beach is so you can hear the birds and the waves. But we take speakers because we need to hear music. We've got earp- airpods in our ears all the day long, from the minute we wake to the minute we go to, to sleep. We, and, and I get it, right? I, I do it. The, the second I get in my car, a podcast goes on. Always noise, always distraction. We live in an age of constant distraction when we rarely just sit with our own thoughts in the same way that our great-grandparents would have. We love to be entertained. But as Neil Postman put it, we are amusing ourselves to death. That's one of those book titles where you don't actually need to read that book. You kind of get his point just from the title. What I mean by that is that with constant distraction, it is so easy for us to avoid this deep, spiritual reflection. We can quickly numb the conviction of our sin. We can kill the despondency that comes from looking at this fallen world by just getting a shot of dopamine by logging on to social media. But listen, we need to lean into this. There are times where we need to sit in the dark There are times when we need to feel the weight of our sins, not to be morbid or morose, but to understand the chasm that our sin has created between us and God. We need to feel the weight of natural evil in this world. We need to come to terms with what Paul means when he says that this created world is groaning under the weight of sin. We need to grieve the desecration of evil. And when we do, as Isaiah is leading his readers to do here, when he do, it leads us to pray for more blessing. It leads us to realize that, you know what, my home is not here. There are things I enjoy here. There are things that I give thanks to God for. I'm grateful that His thumbprints have not been wholly extinguished from this created order, but this is not my home. This is not where I can sit down and rest. This is a ravine, and I long to be out in that green and pleasant valley. And so it leads us to pray, to pray that this new world that we know is coming would come. And so Isaiah leads his readers, he leads us to pray, verse 1, that God would rend the heavens and come down. It's an evocative image, isn't it? That God would rip open the heavens, that He would rip open the blue sky, that He would rip open the the black vastness that's beyond, and that God would come from the third heaven through the second heaven and the first heaven, and that He would make it all new. R.C. Sproul said that prayer that God would rend the heavens, that, that He would not just look down from heaven, but come down. And make his presence unmistakably clear. It's a prayer that everything that Isaiah has just described about life in the new age would come quickly, that God would restore his people to the fullness of joy and peace, that he would fully restrain all of his and our enemies. Ray Hortland says the most important word in this whole passage, in this whole, whole prayer, is the first word of verse one oh, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. He writes, Isaiah isn't theorizing. He's praying, and he's praying with a passion. For Zion's sake, he is not keeping silent until her salvation goes forth as a burning torch. He is taking no rest, and he's giving God no rest until God's people are a praise in the earth, Isaiah 62.1. He is gripped by a cause greater than himself. There is no greater joy than the descent of God to earth. Oh, 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 Lord, Oh, would you rend the heavens and come down? Are you praying with that passion? Are you praying with that deep soul felt, Oh, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. May it be so. Or have you perhaps grown a little too content in this present world? Have you perhaps made peace with your sin and the evil in the world? Are you maybe entertaining away the discontent? Isaiah wants something so much more for you. He wants to grasp all that He has written in the past few chapters. He wants to fill your mind with thoughts of heaven and the glories of the coming kingdom in which our redemption will be brought to its full completion. He wants you to grasp. He wants your heart to grasp that this is not a fairy story. This is not an allegory. This is a reality. A day will come when Jesus will return and He will make all things new. A day really will come when Jesus will strike that final fatal blow against evil, and the church, the New Jerusalem, will be established in all of its resplendent glory as a bride adorned for Christ, her husband. That day is coming. Right? What, is it that, what is the final word that Jesus gave to us? Surely I am coming soon. And what do we pray in response? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Lord, haste that day when the faith shall be sight. Lord, roll the clouds back like a scroll. Sound that trumpet and descend to the earth because then It will be fully well with my soul. Let us pray.